May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want to take care of a couple things before we jump into the sermon. So first things first. Has anyone besides me listened to Kanye West's new album, <laughs> Jesus is King? Can I see a show of hands? That's great. If you haven't done so already, please do so, and we can talk about it later. But... Uh, some incredible things going on there. And the song Hold On, for those of you who've listened, would fit nicely behind it, sort of as a soundtrack to the sermon, Hold On. So if you have time, listen to that today. The other thing I want to say is we are deeply thankful as a family to, to be united to you. Um, had I known several months ago that the stakes were going to be so high, I might have uh, tried to perform a little better. I might have tried to... Uh, <laughs> put on a better show, a better face, but uh, very thankful to be with you all and uh, to see what the Lord is doing and moving us forward together as a family, as, as Zach so graciously put it. I've learned a couple of things. Um, I've learned a couple of things about myself over the last couple of weeks, especially. Uh, one is that uh, I'm not quite sure what to do with this, but either I've developed a very low dew point or I'm just going through the change, whatever that means. <laughs> so if you, catch me, if you catch me crying a little bit today, or it's not because I'm sad to be with you. I'm so delighted to be with you. But it's probably a sign of about 13 years of struggle and 13 years of joys and sorrows sort of dammed up behind my heart and now leaking out a little bit. And so I'm delighted to be with you and to be in a safe place where uh, I can express those things along with you. And so as we rejoice with those who rejoice, let us all also sorrow with those who sorrow. Let us begin with prayer. Oh God, I thank you for your tender mercies and the way you love us and you brought us together in Christ. And you've gathered us around your table and word today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and minds. We often say that, uh, let it not be a rote prayer, but something we truly mean. Illumine our hearts and minds and scatter the darkness. Drive away our fears and doubts. Drive away our sorrows and fill us with joy and peace and the Holy Spirit. I imagine that many have gathered today feeling a, a range of emotions and burdens, uh, a range of experiences, and I pray that you'll meet us where we are. And bring us to Christ where we may find healing in this community of healing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the life you have given to us and for the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in and among us. And we pray that in all these things, as we gather together in your presence and over your word, that we will do so faithfully and joyfully, uh, knowing that all of these gifts come from your hand into our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you have seen in recent weeks, grace and mercy teach us to offer our bodies to God. Grace and mercy teach us to renew our minds, and grace and mercy teach us to be transformed and to discern God's will and to utilize our gifts. And all of this, the end of all of this, is to love and serve one another for the glory of God the good of the church, and for the life of the world. 
And so as we enter into this text today and explore what the Holy Spirit has given us here, I hope and pray that uh, you take full account of all of the imperative statements that are made. You see here that the Holy Spirit has given us a list of things to do. And it's not just busy work, but this is a list of things to do intended to strengthen and edify the body of Christ. And so take these commandments to heart, take them to heart, explore them, meditate upon them, and see uh, how you may grow in the Lord. Now, there are so many imperatives here. There's no way uh, that in the next 90 minutes we can cover all of this. So we're going to take a, a couple of them and pare the sermon down and just give you a taste or a flavor of what Paul is getting at in this passage. If I could narrow down the whole sermon in sort of cookie, uh, fortune cookie uh, form, I would say that the whole sermon is this, that God's mercy calls you to sympathize with others in grace, that God's mercy calls you to sympathize with family and friends, with enemies and with with family, with strangers in love. And so there's a range of things going on here as the grace and mercy of God sort of turn us inside out. And so you see in these commandments that we are not called to just look inward and navel gaze and, and try to think of what's in it for me, but the grace and mercy of God turn us inside out so that we become more extrospective, looking out to others and for others. If you break down the passage, you'll see that Paul, um, on one hand, he is addressing the church, how we relate to one another in the body of Christ, but he also deals with how we relate to those who are outside the body of Christ. But you see, the movement is the same. It's always toward the other. It's away from self toward the other. As a healing community, we become the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ to one another and to the world. And so we're going to learn a little bit about sympathy today. Sympathy. To sympathize simply means to feel the same thing that other people feel. It, it sympathy is described in this way by some as two hearts pulling the same load. Two hearts pulling the same load. And so as mercy turns us inside out, it makes us other-directed. This past week, I had a chance to uh, go to the movies with my son, Asher, and we saw the, the movie Joker. And there were a couple of lines in that that stood out to me and, 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 and gripped me as Arthur Fleck, who becomes the Joker, says, I pass you every day and you don't notice me. Have you seen what it's like out there? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. The Holy Spirit in Romans 12 is commanding us to stop and think what it's like to be the other guy. Stop and think what it's like to be the other guy. If you want to be a healing community, you need to notice the people that pass you in your life, that pass you on the road, pass you in the store, pass you in your neighborhood. You need to, you need to pay attention to those people. Pay attention to who is passing you by every day. 
We're called to think about what it's like to be the other guy, to try to put ourselves in the other person's sandals, in the other person's situation, to see what it's like from their side of life. This is what it means to sympathize with others. Now, Paul gives us some very specific things here. I'll mention a couple of them for you. One is he talks about the difference between blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. And I want to break that down for you a little bit because I think it's important for us to see what he is saying and what he's not saying, okay? When he says bless, he's literally saying we need to learn to eulogize others, eulogize each other, speak good words to and about each other, speak good things about them, utter good things for them. In other words, our purpose is to bring the gospel to bear in every aspect of life, and it must flood our conversations. But he also says, don't curse. And if you think about what that means, it doesn't simply mean don't use four-letter words. That's the way I heard it growing up, right? That's how you hear it in the Bible Belt. Just don't use four-letter words. Don't watch movies with those bad four-letter words. But what Paul is getting at is actually much deeper and more serious than that. On one hand, he says, bless and do not curse. So when you talk about in Scripture using biblical language, cursing others means that you're not going to use cruel and hateful language, but it's deeper than that. You know what it actually means? Is that you're not going to call down God's judgment and wrath on others. One reason the phrase that people hear God, D, this, X, Y, and Z, is the reason that is so offensive is not only does it use God's name in vain, but it is a kind of prayer asking God to condemn someone to eternal damnation for what reason? Well, because they cut you off in traffic or because they made you feel bad, or because a kid left a toy on the floor, or whatever it happens to be. And suddenly, the most violent and the most aggressive prayer that comes off the lips of many people is that God would curse someone, damn them to hell. Why? Because I've been offended in some way. It's an overreaction. It's an overreaction. And so while God is the only one who can make that determination and make that judgment about people... We are not called to participate in helping him make that judgment. We're not called to weigh in and say, here's what I think about my neighbor or this stranger or this person or my spouse or my kid. I think this should happen to them, that they should be damned to hell because I was offended in some trivial matter. This is what Paul is getting at. Bless and do not curse. And in biblical language, when you bless someone, what you are asking God to do is give them the highest good. And what is the highest good that we know of? The highest good that we know of is what our children just learned about, is that God would forgive their sins, that God would grant them life, that God would give them peace, that God would bring them into a relationship with him, that God would establish his salvation in their hearts and in their community. You see the difference here? Bless and do not curse. On one hand, we're asking God to bring salvation to bear on our neighbor, on, our, on strangers, on our family and friends, on our enemies. On the other hand, we're not getting involved in asking God to bring judgment on them. We don't wish that on anyone. 
We don't wish that on anyone. So I just remind you that God doesn't need our help in this aspect of judgment. Rather, he calls us to echo the words of the Lord Jesus Christ or to echo the words of the priest who were blessing God's people and putting his name on them. Why? So that they would be saved. So that they would be saved. So we're called to be a healing community. It's our place. It's our calling to bless and not to curse. As Gandalf the Grey said to Frodo in the mines of Moria, and I'm sure you're all well aware of this, but he says, do not be so eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. What Paul is getting at in Romans 12 is that love is the ultimate apologetic for the Christian faith. And it's not love in the abstract, the love that just dwells in my head or in my heart, but it's the love that oozes out of our fingertips, comes off of our lips, that moves our feet to action. It's that kind of love embodied that moves us to bless and not curse. And since there is no higher, greater blessing than salvation through Jesus Christ When we love our neighbor as ourselves, when we love our friends and our enemies, we are hoping and praying for their salvation, not for their damnation, not for their condemnation. We need to sympathize with others. And by others, I mean anyone who happens to be other than you, whatever their race, whatever their situation in life, whatever their ethics, whatever their politics, that's what it means. Sympathize with others. Try to see what life looks like from their side and then bring the gospel to bear in your conversations and in your actions, in your service and ministry to them. I want to ask you a question. You can answer out loud if you'd like. You don't have to, but it would be really cool if you did. Actually, it might be too hard to answer out loud. Do you find that it's easier for you to rejoice with those who rejoice or to grieve with those who grieve? Which is easier for you? Or maybe I could flip it, which is harder for you? Actually, don't answer it out loud. Just work through it in your own heart. And the reason I say that is because the way you answer this question will reveal something about yourself to yourself and perhaps to others. It will reveal whether you are a content person or a covetous person. It will reveal whether you are someone who is haughty or humble. On the one hand, in my experience, I'm saying that my experience as a Christian and as a pastor, I found that it's hard for some of us to, it's hard for some of us to rejoice with the joyful. And here's why. Our pride keeps getting in the way, so our pride keeps us from celebrating with, uh, with some in their moment of joy. Instead, we become critics with evil thoughts in our hearts. We're covetous, envious, jealous when other people experience some good thing. And we begin to wonder and question whether they actually deserve that and who do they think they are anyway and why did I get overlooked? And so we scoff and criticize others for the grace of God that is at work in their life. 
So instead of rejoicing with them, some of us, not all of us, of course, but some of us want to rob them of their joy. We want to bring them down a few notches. We want to make sure they remember their place. And usually their place is somewhere beneath me by a few ranks. But if you stop and think about it, the Lord has withheld no good thing from any of us. And if you think about it even deeper, you realize that not only did that person who received this accolade or this grace from God not deserve that, but you and I don't deserve the grace that we've received from God either. None of us are worthy of these gifts, and that's part of the reason it's called grace, because it's unearned, unmerited favor with God. So who are we to criticize others for receiving gifts from God? What are we actually doing when we refuse to rejoice with those who rejoice? We're criticizing God for displaying his grace to people that we think don't deserve it as much as we do. So don't be that guy. Don't go there. On the other hand, some of us have a hard time weeping with those who weep. We don't like to show much emotion, especially emotion that indicates frailty or weakness. So sometimes somebody cries over something that we consider to be a very small thing or a very unimportant thing or it's not worth crying over. How many times have you said that to your children? But maybe to your child it is worth crying over. How many times have you said that to your spouse? It's not worth crying over. It's no big deal. What, you know, really what we're saying is, what's your problem? And yet we're called here to rejoice with those who rejoice, grieve with those who grieve. I want you to think about this as you consider what it's like from the other side as you try to get into someone else's situation or experience. There are things occurring with people around us, things happening with some of you even today and we all know how to play this game we know that we're coming to church and so we're going to dress nice and we're going to dress in a way that we look presentable we're going to put on a good mask we're going to make sure that we look presentable for worship because we don't want people penetrating too deeply into our lives and then what happens is we end up carrying around a range of things sorrows and burdens and fears and doubts and all of these things we carry that around alone and by ourselves because we don't trust the community around us we don't trust that the community around us actually has our best interest in mind and maybe the community does so paul tells us grieve with those who grieve share their sorrows carry their burdens get involved in it don't blow off their sorrows and fears and pains as if they are useless and unnecessary. They might be very useful and necessary for that person at this time. And what they need is someone to come alongside them and maybe not say a thing, but just be there with them as a faithful presence. This is the kind of thing we need in a community of healing, don't we? It's very difficult to do this. I learned years ago... Uh, in the movie Dead Poet Society, I learned that most men lead, lead lives of quiet desperation. And when I was a teenager and saw that, I felt that a little bit as a teenager. But the older I've gotten and the more men I've gotten to know, the more I realized that's absolutely true. Most men 
lead lives of quiet desperation. But it's not just women. It's not just men. It's also women, isn't it? And it's not just men and women. It's also teenagers. It's young people. They lead lives of quiet desperation. And it's becoming a crisis in our day as people look at the influence or the effects of social media on our lives and on each other as we constantly live in this state of comparison and judgment and contrast. We lead lives of quiet desperation because we don't quite measure up. We don't feel like there's a place for us. We don't feel like we fit in. And if you don't have a community of healing around you, what do you do with that? You just keep holding it down and pressing it deeper inside into your life. A community of healing will give you permission, will give you freedom, will give you access to unburden yourself. And that's what we're striving for as the church of Jesus Christ. Grace calls us to sympathize with others, to feel what others feel. It doesn't mean that we're called to solve all the puzzles and mysteries of their life. There are many things that you're going through for which I will never have an answer as a pastor. There are questions on your heart and mind, doubts and fears for which I will not have an easy two-step approach to solving that problem. You're in a community of people that will have a range of doubts and fears and struggles and the temptation will be for someone around you to try to fix that with a quick cliche or a slogan or some motto that they heard or maybe just a, a stream of memes coming your way. That's not going to solve it. We're not called to solve every problem or fix every issue Sometimes we're simply called to be a faithful presence in the life of each other so that we are sharing this experience, carrying this burden together. Now, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to learn to feel what others feel, whether it's joy or sorrow, anxiety or contentment. It takes a lot to, to get into that. But it means getting outside of yourself for the sake of others. Zach and I spent some time on Friday talking about these kinds of things, and something that came up in our table talk was, was this, and you can tell me if you think it's true or not, but we think it's true. We think that the greatest gifts that we can give each other as a community are the gifts of time plus our ears, time plus our ears. I'm going to venture a guess, I don't know any of you very well, but I'm going to venture a guess that very few of you are in relationships where you can just unburden yourself, judgment-free zone, unburden your heart, lay it all out, and not sour or spoil the relationship. A community of healing will give you permission to lay it all out, to lay it all out for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what grace lets us do. A community filled with grace doesn't fear brokenness. It doesn't fear uh, these kinds of weird things that come up because it's rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we learn in this passage in the context of Romans 12 that grace is good for everyone. And so we're called to cultivate this grace-based attitude of forgiveness and sympathy and 
faithfulness to each other. We're not keeping records of wrongs. We're not harboring grudges against each other. We're learning to forgive and forget, to let it go, and to move on in life with each other. And so I want to encourage you to do that, to forgive and forget early, early and often. I came across a story this week that I think will help us put, uh, put some of this in perspective. It's a story of a soldier and a doctor from, from World War II. The story goes that it was during the Battle of the Bulge that a soldier riding in a jeep uh, was involved in a, in a shootout. And as a result, the driver being killed, the passenger being shot, the jeep goes into a ditch This soldier was discovered by the opposing army. And he was taken to the the medical facility, taken to a place where he would be treated by the opposing army. And since he was an enemy soldier, not very many people sympathized with him or had much concern for him, except one doctor who took great pains to work on this man. Even though his commanders and people around him were saying, let him go, it's not worth it. He's the enemy. This doctor went to great pains to put this man back together from the inside out. He worked on him hours on end until his life was spared and he was in a place where he could begin to heal. And immediately people wanted to get rid of this enemy soldier and get him out of their medical facility. And the doctor went to bat for him and spoke on his behalf and and worked out a deal so that he could stay at least one more week. It was during that week that a chaplain from, his, from the soldier's side came to the facility, touring the facility under a flag of truce. And he made it known to the soldier that that facility had been targeted for bombing because of the number of military vehicles camped or parked around it. And the soldier who had been put back together by a doctor from the opposing force began to work out a negotiation deal to spare the hospital. At which point the hospital was spared. This man's life was saved. And before he left the facility, he and the physician exchanged addresses to keep in touch with each other. What I haven't told you about the story is that the soldier who was injured was not a Nazi. He was an enemy from the perspective of the doctor who was serving the Nazis, who had been drafted in to serve them. It was a Nazi physician who pieced this man back together again. When that man from Iowa, a farm boy from Iowa, returned home after the war, he was able to recover fully, get married, and have children. And before his son passed away, he was telling the story and he said, he said, there is no telling how many lives were spared because of the mercy shown by that physician to my father and because of my father's response of showing mercy to others in that facility. Lives were spared, both friends and enemies were spared because of this sympathetic gesture of mercy and grace. Just imagine how many lives we can spare if we live in this way, sympathizing with others, seeing what life is like on their side. How many lives can be spared if we 
show mercy and grace instead of seeking vengeance and trying to get even with others. I know that some of you don't get mad, you get even, but we're not called to get, uh, to get even. We are called to let God deal with the world and execute his vengeance and exercise his judgment. But that's not for us to do. That's for God to do. In the meantime, what we're called to do is to show mercy and kindness towards others. Sympathy takes deliberate and intentional effort. It requires us to notice other people, to be flexible with them, and to develop a kind of emotional dexterity for them so that it's not just our way, but, and it's not just their way, but it's our way together, looking for the best ways to bring about healing. One pastor describes this, uh, this section of Romans as a life-changing call toward one another and the other. And he suggests that we adopt a practice employed by some Middle Eastern folks. Here's what they do. They touch the head, they touch the lips, they touch the heart. They touch the head, they touch the lips, they touch the heart. See if you can do that with me, like we're five. You touch the head, you touch the lips, you touch the heart. And here's what it symbolizes. Here's why they do that when they see each other. They're saying, I think highly of you. And my lips speak well of you. And my heart beats for you. A community of healing will think highly of the other and speak well of the other. And their heart will beat for the other. Tim Keller has said that the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. He's not the only one who said that, but since you're familiar with his name, I mentioned it, and I like to name drop every once in a while. (laughs) But we want to be careful about this, don't we? We want to be careful because we're not simply a hospital, nor are we simply a hotel. We're a community of healing. We are a people that are in process You are being healed, but you're inviting others to be healed with you. You are not the healers, but you know the one who is. And you're inviting people to come and share in his life together. So if we wish to be a healing community, here's some things we need to do. As if I haven't given you enough to do, but here are a few more things. We need to get real with each other. We need to get real with each other. We need to be able to come clean and tell on ourselves with each other and for each other. We need to be able to tell the truth about each other. When you rub us up the wrong way, we need to be able to tell you that without you getting your feathers ruffled and and losing your mind over it. But you also need to be able to tell us that, right? That's what a family is like. That's what a community is like. You tell each other the truth. We need to create a safe haven for the weak and the weary and the wounded to come and find grace in their time of need. But it's not just about them. We also need to be a place where it's okay to be strong and kind of put together and and on your way out of your injuries, right? We need to get real with our neighbors, including our enemies. And we need to see that, yeah, they're broken and they're a mess, but so are we. And furthermore, they need to see that about us, that we don't have it all together. Maybe we're not as cleaned up and polished as they imagined us to be, but we know the one who cleans and polishes. 
We know the place to go and find healing, and we can help them in that journey and in that experience. So we're not presenting ourselves to the world as the healers. When we say we're a healing community, we're saying this is a place where you can come and find healing. This is a place where you can come and help us in our healing. This is a place that's going to move out to bring healing to others in the name of Jesus Christ. So we're being healed, but we're also helping heal according to the gospel of grace. I want to give you a few personal, uh, personal snapshots of what this looks like, and then I'll wrap up, okay? A few personal snapshots of what a healing community looks like in real life. I'm pretty sure you know what one looks like, but I want to share some things with you to help you see it clearly today. A healing community looks like this. It looks like a make, a make America Great Again Trump voter welcoming his undocumented brothers and sisters into his home, onto his fishing boat, into his shop, and at his table. That's what it looks like. It looks like blue-collar workers giving out of their very tight budgets to support gospel mission in other parts of the world where they don't know anybody. It looks like elders and their wives gathering for prayer around a sick sister and anointing her with oil in the name of the Lord and expecting him to heal her. It looks like a hundred people or more coming from Rockwall over to Skeetside to worship with a very frail congregation of God's people. It looks like an elder's wife seeking out my weeping daughter to give her a few words of encouragement and comfort. It looks like a chef turned mayor grabbing a pastor and saying, I'm so happy that God brought us together and you're going to be one of my pastors. I'm happy too. That's what a healing community looks like. It looks like people that laugh together and eat together and drink together and cry together. It looks like people gathering funds to send to a, to send a man on a trip to be with his wife several states away in a moment of crisis. It looks like taking food to someone who is too weak and frail to cook for themselves to say, we love you. We're in this with you. That's what a healing community looks like. It looks like a church. It looks like a church of wounded people gathering together in the name of Jesus to love one another for the sake of Jesus. But more than that, a healing community looks like this. Here's a snapshot I want to leave you with. It looks like Jesus Christ. It looks like Jesus Christ embodying all the aspects of sympathy, enduring trials and tribulations of the cross for the hope set before him and for the joy that's promised to him. It looks like Jesus Christ sharing with one another and meeting their needs. It looks like Jesus Christ going out to the margins and on the outside and finding people on the fringe and bringing them to his table. It looks like Jesus weeping with those who weep 
at a funeral and yet rejoicing with children coming into his presence. It looks like Jesus dwelling among the lowly and dying as a slave. It looks like Jesus overcoming the evil of the world with the good of grace. It looks like Jesus destroying the devil, delivering us from evil, being tempted as we are yet without sin and able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses so that we who once were his enemies may now draw near to his table and receive his mercy and find his grace in our time of need. It looks like Jesus welcoming us to his table to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which he has given for the life of the world. We're going to come to this table, and I'm not going to tell you how to feel. If you're rejoicing in the Lord, come rejoicing. If you're sorrowful, come sorrowful. And whether you come rejoicing or sorrowful in the Lord, you are going to find grace to meet you where you are as Jesus Christ sympathizes with you. And he is with us today by his spirit in each other. So one last thing. You want to see what a healing community looks like? I want everyone on this side of the congregation to look this this way. And I want everyone on this side to look that way. That's what a healing community looks like. And it looks like people who say, I think highly of you. I speak well of you. And my heart beats for you. And no one says, says that to us better than Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, we give you thanks and praise for your tender mercies. For the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives and in our hearts and in this community. We thank you, O God, that we can draw near to your throne of grace and lay our burdens down and that we can uh, come to this table, that we can come to this table and find grace to help us in our time of need. I pray that we will find uh, comfort here today. Comfort us, O God, by your promises. Remind us of your covenant. And as we eat and drink with Christ and his people today, I pray that we will keep the festival Uh, with joy and peace in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.